I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life, dare I say this, I'm a pastor, where I've gone through some dark, lonely times, and in my head, I know my theology, I know in my head he's for me, but I don't always feel like he's for me. But I know that my feelings sometimes tells lies. And... uh, I just felt led to say that to somebody here today who's going through a difficult time and you can't see your way out and maybe your expectations have been shattered and maybe you have had one disappointment after another and you keep hearing these wonderful stories of Christian friends who prayed and God answered their prayer and got them out of it and did this for them but it seems like the more you pray the more stuck you get and you wonder Is God really for me? Yes, he is for you. And one of the things that I've learned when I've gotten on the other side of through, gotten on the other side of the pain and disappointment and frustration, I've learned to thank God for not delivering me when I wanted to be delivered because it would have been premature. And he's more interested in making me like his son than me being comfortable and even liking what he's doing. And God wants to do that in our lives. Father, we thank you that you are indeed for us, even though there are those times in which we don't feel like it. And I do pray specifically for that person today. And I know there's probably a bunch of us here. Um, Frankly, we've gotten disappointed. We're even disappointed in you. And I pray, God, that your spirit will whisper in our ears, uh, you don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing something. Hang in there. And Lord, speak to our hearts. Do your work today. Bless us indeed. We love you. We worship you. Thank you for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to thank you for not taking a vacation today. Some of us feel like when it's a holiday, we just kind of take a holiday from worship. We go to Bedside Baptist or Pillow Presbyterian, (laughs) Church of the Inner Spring. (laughs) And we do that. We do that. We do that. I almost felt like that this morning. I'm giving all these true confessions. Karen and I were there in the Georgia Dome at that game. What a waste of time. I know. (laughs) Bam. Why did you go to that thing? And so, you know... Never mind, that's too much vulnerability here. It's just kind of like on to more delightful things. We're just so glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, thank you for stopping by. And we say this every week, and we hope that you get it if you've been here often, that we do want to connect with you. Uh, It's not a perfect place, but it's a perfect God. And you'll discover that Fellowship Bible Church, uh, we love Jesus in this place, and we love one another. And we're seeking to do the will of God, and we're growing together. And uh, if you're questioning, well, do I want to be a part of this? Well, come on and uh, link up with us. If you have any questions whatsoever, you can tear off the bottom of uh, uh, your, um, I always call that a program, but it's a bulletin. And that's, again, I'm sleep deprived from wasting my time last night. Um, And you can fill that out, and we, we would love to be in touch with you. If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This is the last of this four-part series on the hard sayings of Jesus. Now, Jesus said 
more than four hard things. Uh, I said at the very beginning, you could probably do like 20 weeks or more on the hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus said some very direct things, and you look at some of the things that he said, and I, if you're like me, you scratch your head and go, huh? Uh, we began by talking about hell, and Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person by far in the Bible. And I wanted us to understand that hell is not a metaphor. It is a very real place, and the eternal suffering that goes on in hell is something beyond human imagination. It's a reality. And then a little mini two-part series, part of the four-part series, entitled Love That Hates. Raise a question in the first of those messages. What did Jesus mean when he said, hate your mother, your father, your sisters, and your brothers, and if you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple? We scratch our head. Um, but we said that he meant by that not necessarily a literal hate, but didn't want to move too far from that. He's talking about an uncommon, unparalleled, incomparable love for him that makes the love for every other relationship that we have to appear to be as hate. So to be a follower of Jesus means an unquestioned loyalty and allegiance to the Lord of history. And then last week, uh, we looked at that text and caused you to scratch your head when Jesus said that I didn't come to send peace, but I came to send a sword. Mother against father and brother against sister, etc. And our enemies will be of our own household. What did he mean by that? He said, no, he was not saying a negative promise that we come to Jesus and that means that our, our family will be against us necessarily. But he did say that sometimes that's a reality. The very nature of the gospel. And we looked at the flip side of the gospel. The gospel has a sting to it. And we have no right to take the sting out of the gospel because we want to preach a permissive love. To make a commitment to Jesus Christ and to embrace him means that we become a mirror to those people who are close to us and they don't like necessarily what they see because they see a bit of condemnation to those who do not believe and don't want to believe. The gospel is a sword. It is a sword. Now today we're going to look at a very interesting passage of scripture. I, that they've all been interesting to me. But this one, Matthew chapter 21. And I'm going to read these verses and I have often scratched my head over this one. And I got to tell you, I gave a little assignment to some of the folks who are close to me here in the church. I, I asked them this question. I want you to read this text and answer the question. Why in the world did Jesus curse a fig tree? I mean, you you read this and you go, huh? And by the way, two-thirds of the commentaries that you might read on this text, you know, it sounds arrogant and I don't mean to sound that way, but I don't know that I agree with them. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 18. I'm going to read verses 18 to 22, but I want to camp on verses 18 and 19. Matthew chapter 21. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. Now here's the line. 
and the fig tree, not gradually, but withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Again, I'm going to chicken out on verses 20 through 22. I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to refer to it, but I'm not going to go there, all right? Now, why in the world would Jesus curse a fig tree? You, you read that and you go, what? what's up with this? I mean, consider every other miracle that Jesus did was a life-giving miracle. Sight the blind, uh, healing people, uh, feeding folks. Uh, this is the only negative miracle in the gospel. Well, why, why, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Don't, don't be so quick to say he did that to teach a lesson on faith. I'm going to tip my hand a little bit later on. No, that's, that's a how question that they ask him, not a why question. But why did he do that? Why? It baffles us. Tree didn't do anything. And can you imagine the disciples going, I I know he created it, but is he into, you know, damaging the environment? Why did he do it? I'm going to answer that question pretty quickly here. But I, I need, to, need you to understand, and here's a lesson that I really want us all to understand, particularly those of us who are in Bible studies and in small groups, context is king. Context is king. You cannot understand Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 19, apart from its broader context, its historical context and the grammatical context, but primarily the historical context. Now, what is happening here, and I'm going somewhere with this, I promise you, what is happening here is that Jesus was near Jerusalem, and this, this is very important, this event takes place in the very last week of his public ministry. The very last week of his public ministry. After this, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. This is the very last week of Jesus' public ministry. What's the big deal about that? Well, by this point, the religious leaders had maligned him and rejected him. What's that got to do with the fig tree? Hang in there. I'm coming back to this fig tree thing here. But they had maligned him and rejected him. Not only that, as you study the life of Christ, Jesus makes a strategic retreat at this point. By the time you get to Matthew chapter 20-ish, 21, Jesus has withdrawn from the crowd and even some of his own disciples in the broadest sense are not following him. He's left with the 12 that will go with him to the upper room. And so Jesus has experienced incredible rejection. In fact, John says, and he came to his own and his own did not receive him did not receive him. It's important to understand this as you look at these events and this fig tree. 
I'm going to give you a bit of a bottom line first, give you the lesson first, and then go back to the text. I actually believe that Jesus' point in this illustration or in this event is that Jesus is really condemning fruitless hypocrisy. Now, I'm going to justify that conclusion in a second, but I wanted to give that up front. That the point of this is that he's just, he's condemning fruitless hypocrisy. And I want to say some words about hypocrisy from an applicational setting up front, and then we're going to keep coming back to this through the body, the body of the message. Someone said many of us believe that wrongs are not wrong if it's done by nice people like ourselves. <laughs> None of us think that we're hypocritical. I mean, we compare ourselves, we compare ourselves to one another. There are two reasons why we're pulled toward hypocrisy. Now, there are many reasons, but I think that there are two big banner bucket reasons, two big broad category reasons why we're pulled toward hypocrisy. And this relates to every last one of us in here. I think number one is fear. Fear. We get pulled into hypocritical behavior because we're, we want to be accepted, we're afraid of rejection, we want to measure up to what people think about us, those of us who struggle with people-pleasing, we will act a certain way because we think that's the expected behavior, and we're afraid that folks are going to stand back from us, and, and this kind of thing, and those of us who have a tad bit more of a compliant nature, we need to be careful of that because we don't intend to be hypocritical, but we deny our own set of convictions, our own personhood, our own character, because we're afraid. We want the imprimatur of other people, or we're afraid to fail, or whatever, and so that pulls us toward hypocritical behavior. I think a second broad category is because um, we have ungodly intentions. Some of us are hypocrites because we're hiding stuff in our lives. Our intentions are not right. Um... You know, we, 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 we have stuff that's going on. I've, I've known people who have struggled with pornography and other things in their lives and sexual sin, and they've developed a compartment, and there's something happening down in there. And you get close to them, and they've learned how to mask it and play games. And I just want to say two quick things and get back to the text here. Let, let me say two quick things. One is that if we fear people more than we fear God, it's just a matter of time that we will become actors. I want you to remember that. If you fear people more than you fear God, you will become an actor. Secondly, if we don't bring our sinful desires to the cross, we definitely will become actors, if not predators. Don't ever underestimate the pull to the dark side in our souls, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these two broad things drive us toward toward hypocrisy. Now, at its core, hypocrisy is self-delusion. I promise you I'm coming back to this passage. But at its core, hypocrisy is self-delusion. I have met people who have lived a lie for so long that they actually have convinced themselves that the lie is the reality. 
They've deluded themselves. They, they, they don't know what's real anymore. They've used so many euphemisms and so many excuses and, and they've so pampered their behavior and, and so, so coddled it and so neutered sin and so rationalized it that they're self-deluded. And this is also the case with the nation of Israel during this time. And I, I just want to sound a warning here. Because I think the greatest thing that maligns the church of Jesus Christ today is hypocritical behavior. Hypocrisy dulls our conscience and it washes away moral responsibility and obligation. Hypocrisy erodes integrity. Hypocrisy erases character. And by the way, I like to say that the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. To not be a hypocrite does not mean that we are perfect. The opposite of hypocrisy, quite to the contrary, is genuineness and authenticity. So I'm not talking about perfect behavior here, and I'm not talking about believers who don't sin. The opposite of hypocrisy is transparency. The opposite of hypocrisy is genuineness. The opposite of hypocrisy is walking in the light. It's reality. That's the opposite of hypocrisy. Now, the Bible defines genuineness, though, in terms of our relationship with Christ, as fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. It is a demonstration of fruit. Now, let me give you a principle that I think will tie all of this together, and then I'm going to start, I promise you, coming back to the passage. You'll see it on the screen here. Here it is, Jesus consistently taught that fruit, what is produced through our lives, tells the truth about who we really are and who we are related to. He consistently taught that. The reason why he condemned the religious leaders and the Pharisees and that kind of thing was not that they were... um, uh, weak and not, not, not that, they, that, they, that they, they had problems, is that they just kept projecting something that was wrong and it became so blatant and obvious that what they projected, there was no, no anchor or roots in reality. There was no fruit. It wasn't consistent. Hold your finger there and go over to Matthew chapter 7. Sermon on the Mount, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets uh, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot be bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. There is, and I hate to say this, uh, and I don't mean to sound legalistic, some of us who have a little bit, in my opinion, of an obsessive or should I say out of context view on grace will not like what I'm getting ready to say right here, but there is a legitimate pragmatism in biblical Christianity. Authentic Christianity, there is a legitimate pragmatism. We know it's real 
by what it produces. And that's what Jesus said. We know that it's real by what it produces. By what it produces. I'm talking all around this tree. I promise you I'm going to come back to it. Now, now, here's a transition point. Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 19, is a dramatic visual condemnation of hypocrisy. It is a dramatic visual condemnation of hypocrisy. Now, here are the three things, or the two other bookends that this text needs to be connected to. There are two events, and then there's one process. And hopefully I can connect the dots. This event has to be connected with the cleansing of the temple. For us to really get what he's saying here, of course, now the cursing of the fig tree, and then the applicational implication for us in John 15, the cutting off of the branch. So there's a cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree, and the cutting off of the branch. Now, this is very important stuff this morning, fellowship. What I'm getting ready to share to us, I think, is core to authentic Christianity that makes a difference in the world. So hang in there with me. Number one, there is the cleansing of the temple. Go back over in Matthew 21 to verse 12. These events take place again. This is the last week of our Lord's earthly ministry. Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he walks into the temple. Look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I want you to understand how much Jesus detests hypocrisy. Jesus is not subtle about hypocrisy. And he said to them in verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This place was supposed to be a place where people came to get connected with God, where their sins were taken care of, where they communed with God, where they dealt directly with God. But nevertheless, the place has now turned out to something that it it doesn't look anything like it. You're buying and you're selling and it's all about you and you're doing it in the name of the Lord. And it's as if he says, how dare you? And excuse my intensity, but my intensity doesn't even come close to what Jesus did. He threw them out of the temple. And I don't think he was silent about it. How dare you turn what I have designed into something that you want? How dare you do that? By the way, let me just say right now, look, listen to me, listen to me. We're open to what people think here at the church. We got to be open to that. As leaders, any time a leader doesn't listen, he has lost the authority to lead. Okay, got that, got that, got that. But let me tell you something. This place is not run by a bunch of our opinions. How I think this place ought to run is categorically irrelevant. What God says the design is, is all that's really important. 
And he threw them out of the temple because they had perverted the place. They had made it something that it was not designed to do. And then secondly, did not honor his intention. And it says Jesus has reached a breaking point, so to speak. He had put up with these religious leaders. He had pled with them. He had, he had conjoled them. He had offered the salvation to them. He had dialogued with them. And every turn along the way, not only would they not respond, but they were so categorically disingenuous and so hostile and so manipulative and they had so perverted the truth of God's word. They had manipulated and abused and, and ran over the people. And it was like when he walks in the temple, he says, oh no, this is not it. Stop. Cut it out. And I wonder if Jesus would walk in some of our churches, what he would say. I wonder what he would do. He'd probably say to a lot, who in the world do you think you are? You think you can tell the church what to be and how to act? You think your opinions are sacrosanct? Kind of reminds me of the story I heard last week of this uh, fishing village in New England around the turn of the century, the 1800s. So many fishing accidents and storms that killed so many people, and they had this rescue center that was too close to town and so they decided to move it closer to the bay but over time the rescue mission became a club and I won't tell you where it is but it's now a very famous yacht club it no longer does what it was intended to do now it exists for the pleasure of its members and the temple had turned into the pleasure of its members rather than the intention of God. Now, let's get to the text here. The cursing of the fig tree. Again, in context, this all takes place at the same time. Same, same way. He, he, he's, it's in the same context. He's been rejected. Jesus has drawn a line in the sand with the religious leaders. Uh, Their hearts are not right. They're just overflowing with hypocrisy. And so now we come again, Matthew 21, verses 18 and 19. I want to read it again. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, let me kind of dip into verses 20 through 22 and tell you why I'm not going to go there. The reason why I'm not going to go there is that Jesus tells the disciples how the fig tree was cursed, but he didn't tell them why. And the reason why he didn't tell them why, because they didn't ask him why. They asked him how. They didn't ask him why. They asked him how. So, you know, uh, part of the commentaries that I've read, they confuse this here. And Jesus answered their question, but they didn't ask him why. They ask him how. And so he gives them a lesson in faith. Uh, But the why has to do with the broader context. The why has to do 
that has to do with the hypocrisy. Uh, why it was cursed is seen, again, in this context. The, the fig tree, here's the point I want to make. And I'm not being allegorical here. I'm sticking with context. The fig tree throughout the Bible symbolized the nation of Israel. A uh, few passages, Jeremiah eight thirteen, Hosea chapter 9, verses 10 and 16, Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. It has to do, throughout the Bible, God used the image of a fig tree as a portrait of the nation of Israel. Jesus cursing the fig tree showed the real condition of the nation of Israel. So he was being consistent with this imagery. Now again, as we walk through this text, we also see four portraits or four pictures of how we respond to hypocrisy. Look again in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. This is the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is returning to the city and he sees us, he, he, he's hungry and he, he needs something to eat. He's hungry. I don't want to be too uh, allegorical here, but, you know, others were looking to the nation of Israel and the religious leaders as if they were authentic and they were looking to them to feed them. They thought, oh, they got the real deal. Do you have the real deal? Do you, do you realize that other people who are struggling, they're hungry, and they're looking for the reality of Christ in us? Do you get that? Do you get that? Jesus was hungry. Well, secondly, you see anticipation here. Look at what happens. Verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside. I'm hungry. I need something to eat. Ah, there it is. There it is. I'm lonely. I'm frustrated. I'm enslaved in sin. I need hope. It's a group of believers. That's, that's a church, Fellowship Bible Church. I heard about that. I'm anticipating my needs being met by hanging out with its folks. Jesus sees this victory. Well, thirdly, the anticipation. Well, uh, Theodore Hesburgh says all of us are experts at practicing virtue at a distance. So he gets up close to this fig tree. So he, what happens here, he says, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. Only leaves. Hunger, anticipation, number three, disappointment. Just as the tree had leaves with no fruit, so Israel had a show of religion, but no practical experience of faith resulting in godly living. They talked a better game. They knew all the answers. They knew the content. 
In fact, they had scribes and lawyers, not who were adjudicators of the law, but who literally had memorized the first five books of the Bible, and they knew the law. They had the content. They had it all down. They had the religious ceremonies down. They had 600 and some odd different laws. They knew all of that stuff. It was lifeless. Lifeless. They were bankrupt. Empty. This summer, Karen and I, uh, we, uh, we were on vacation and we flew out on the West Coast and had flown all day long and they no longer serve you real meals on airplanes these days. So we get to where we're going and we get to the hotel and it's like 8.30 at night and we're just starving, at least I am. I'm always hungry. And so you can tell I'm not hungry. I'm Never mind. But I was really hungry. I was starving. So went to the lobby in front desk, and they recommended this great restaurant. You ever have somebody really build something up? I mean, it's just, rec- oh, it's, it is super, it's great. And, it's kind of, and we walked in this place, and the ambiance and all of this stuff, uh, you know, just really kind of like, really looked good, it, too good. It kind of scared me a little bit. And uh, so uh, I'm hungry. And so I sit down, and I look at the menu. It's great. And so I, I order what I think is going to be a great meal. And they come. And the presentation's great. And I look at it and I say to the waiter, you're kidding me, right? This is like an appetizer, right? I said, man, I need groceries. And as much as this costs, you better go back there and put some more scallops on it. <laughs> Hopefully, when people get close to us, they're not disillusioned by an empty mirage. Hopefully, when people come close to our hearts, they don't see religious smoke and mirrors, they don't see just a nice presentation. And then fourthly, there's judgment. There's judgment. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And again, I have to tell you, it's interesting to note that this is the only time that Jesus cursed anything. Now, parentheses, I mean, he did call the Pharisees open graves and this kind of thing. But in terms of cursing something in his earthly ministry, this is the only time he cursed anything. Uh, hmm. Some would call this a negative miracle, and this underscores, as I said earlier, how much our Lord detests hypocrisy. If this is the only time he cursed anything and its roots are in hypocrisy, Think about what Jesus feels about hypocrisy in our lives. Hypocrisy will be judged by the truth that it pretends to possess. Your own fruit or the lack of fruit has condemned you. This is true throughout the Bible. I I could chase this down, but two notable 
biblical illustrations, Saul was rejected as king because of his hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira died because of their hypocrisy. You see, cleansing the temple and cursing the fig tree were two acts of judgment on Israel. The temple had become a den of thieves. The nation was symbolized by the fig tree no longer had any authentic fruit. But the question is that we should not be hard on them. What about us? What about us? We show the mirror and look in the mirror. What about our own lives? What about our own hypocrisy? Uh, God expects fruit from his people. So we have the cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree, and I want to land a plane on John 15. John chapter 15, because I really believe that this is the overall application, and I honestly believe that ultimately this this abiding in Christ, what John des- describes in John 15, particularly verses 1 through 11, is the cure for hypocrisy. And again, I did not say, hear me, hear me, the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is authenticity and genuineness. And the way genuineness is, is demonstrated is by bearing fruit. It is fruit-bearing. The pragmatic side of Christianity, that God demonstrates that we are real by the fruit that's demonstrated in our lives. Now, in this, in this passage, at least what I want to point to, there is a contrast. There's a hard truth, and then there's a comforting assurance. The hard truth is given to us in John 15, verse 1 and verse 6, and for the sake of time, let me just zero in on those, those two verses. The hard truth has to do with the fact that a dead branch is cut off and it is condemned. He says in verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Then down in verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into fire and burned. I, uh, I think the imagery that Jesus is using here, he is talking about religious hypocrites who act as if they're authentically connected to the vine. Who may talk a good game, who may know the language, they maybe even has, have prayed a prayer. But the truth of the matter is there's no fruit anywhere in terms of their walk and relationship with God. And if there's no fruit in our lives, we need to question whether or not we have a relationship with Christ. I didn't say mature fruit, I didn't say a lot of fruit, but if there's zero fruit in our lives, zero, if there's no sustaining fruit in our lives, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, none of that in our lives, no authentic love for Jesus that is distinct in our lives, no, no sense of life change in us. It's not just a pruning exercise. It's the fact that that, that that branch doesn't belong to that tree. And it's cut off. And it's burned. Now the comforting assurance. The comforting assurance. Nowhere in this text does it say that you have to have a certain amount of fruit. It says that you have to have some fruit. 
We're cut back in verse 2. This is the pruning process. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He snips it and cuts it and makes sure that it bears more fruit. But there's some to begin with. There is something there. And the evidence is found in verses 3 through 5. The evidence is a cause and effect evidence, a cause and effect. What, what causes the fruit is abiding. And what's the effect of abiding? It's fruit. He says again, let's read these verses. Verse 3, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's a point I want to make. It's sort of a chicken and an egg thing here. The desire to abide is evidence of our relationship with Christ. And abiding in him and demonstrating the fruit is also evidence of our relationship with him. If there is no hunger for Christ in our hearts, if there's no desire for Christ in our hearts, if there's no tender affection for Christ in our hearts, if we don't love him more than anything else in this world, if there's something in our hearts that's not drawn toward him, then we need to question our relationship with him. The way the fruit is produced is through abiding in him. And if we are relying on Christ, we will be fruitful. That's the assurance. That's the assurance. If we're relying on him, we're going to be fruitful. Fruit's going to show up. The Holy Spirit is not subtle or quiet in our lives. He produces fruit that is clearly seen before a watching world. Again, that's Galatians 5, 22 through 23. If, if we come to Jesus and we love him and we confess our sins and we tell him how weak we are and we declare that we need him, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. The strength to produce the fruit comes from the spirit of God that lives inside of us. He will produce fruit. He'll do it. It's not human effort. It's not strength. You don't see a tree and I need some apples. He's going to do it. But you've got to abide in him. He says, just come here, come here, come here, Robert, come here. Open that Bible. Worship me. Tell me you love me. Blah, 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 blah. But you've got to abide. You've got to abide. And I would say, don't compare, compare your fruit to someone else's fruit. Don't go there. Particularly if you're a new Christian, your fruit may not be ripe or that plentiful, but you got some. You ain't lying quite as much as you used to. You know, I'm getting there. Ain't out of the woods yet, but I can see the beginning of the trail. Okay, I'm moving in that direction. You will bear fruit. Well, let me land the plane here. Hypocrisy is so damning because it tells lies about God. And I think that's the reason why Jesus detested it so much. You see, you, you and I think it's just about me and impressing other people or, or, or pretending to be something that I'm not and it's all just horizontal. No, the reason why it's so damning is because hypocrisy ultimately tells lies on God. 
It pretends that God did more work in your life than he really did. And it's an affront to his holy integrity. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, he said, I have anything to do with you with what you're talking about. When Jesus threw him out the temple, he said, wait, 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 wait a minute. Don't, don't pretend that God's behind all this. Don't go there with me on that. I'm not, I'm not in this. That's you. And the irony is, here's the irony about hypocrisy. The irony is that God can make us far more than we are pretending to be. And that's the irony. Why, why you got to pretend? God said, I can make you far more than you're pretending to be. You're pretending to be this way? I tell you, if you ever got honest with yourself, broken, dealt with your sin, fall at the feet of the cross, respond to me, <laughs> I, tell, I, can, I, can make you, I can make you the greatest saint who ever lived. Why do you think you have to lie or project? I have met professing Christians who are everything from con artists to sexual predators. And by the way, they're all around us. One of the things that just knocked the air out of me was reading about how Philip Garrido who uh, abducted J.C. Lee Dugard. One of the things that just made me so disgusted and shameful was reading how this man read his Bible every day and prayed with her and did the most god-awful, despicable things you can imagine. You know how many people do that kind of thing? Alistair Begg said something at first glance I thought was a little excessive. But then when I thought about it, I found myself agreeing with it. And here's what he said. When we from our lips, from our mouths, people hear godliness coming out. Okay? but they see wickedness in our lives. We point them to heaven, but we lead them to hell. Can I ask you the question as I ask myself, what do people really see when they get close to us? What do they really see? What do they really see? Do they see sinners who have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus, who are open and honest, who are seeking to get better, who love him, and they're growing, and they're not lying about their condition and where they are? Or do they hear a bunch of empty cliches and folks quoting verses and acting as if they're far better than they really are? What do they see? What do they see? Church, it's time for us to run, run away from cultural Christianity. It's time for us to run away from the veneer and the fake and the image 
management and manipulation and the projectionism and to be real, to be genuinely godly, to pursue holiness with all of our hearts.